Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Yeah, chapter 6, it says, uh, And I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above it stood uh, the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. With twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Right? And so that's what we get to do. We get to, to worship the Lord. And we get to do that in, in praise. We get to do that with the whole of our lives. And that's why the idea of stewardship is such a big deal. Because our God is a thrice holy God. He's a big deal. He's a creator God, right? And so this morning, if you guys don't know, my name is Miles Cheadle. Uh, I help to oversee the, the Friends of International Ministry here uh, at MBT. And I have been given the privilege uh, to consider the topic of stewarding in light of our jobs and careers. And I'll warn you that this topic, uh, like Blade was saying, like this topic is bigger uh, than we could ever hope to explore today, right? And so this won't be exhaustive by any means, uh, but Lord willing, it'll be practical. And so today we're going to uh, consider the biblical origins of work. We're going to consider a biblical approach to work. And we're going to understand the biblical mission of work. And I believe that if we can understand these three pillars, uh, then it'll help us live a purposeful, a balanced, and a fruitful life that's glorifying to God. And so, uh, I mean, we thank you for, for leading us in praise, David, and for praying. So we're just going to dive right in uh, to our first topic. Uh, and so the first topic of consideration today is the biblical origins of work. And so that'll be your first blank is origins. Uh, considering the beginning of anything, it adds a layer of context. Uh, and for work, for jobs, for our careers, it, it'll be no different. And so we see this idea of work really start in the beginning, right? The book of Genesis. And so if you will, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to consider a God of work. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through eight, it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And you guys are familiar with the story of creation, right? Day after day, God would speak. And this world would respond, right? Six days of creation. And on the seventh day, there was rest. And it wasn't because our God was tired, but it was to give us an example of work, right? And, and so for, for God... His work, it was good. And this is a pattern for us. And we see this pattern, six days of work, followed by a day of rest, really throughout all of Scripture. We see it in the Sabbath day in the law. 
We see it in these millennial days, right? As we continue to study out uh, the, the word of God. But the first thing that I want us to consider is that our God is a God of work. He's a creator God. And the work of his hands and the work of his words are good. In Psalm 19, verse 1, it says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And just as our God is a God of work, it's important for us to understand that God expects us to be a people of work. Just as our God is a God of work, God expects us to be a people of work. We are called to be workmen, both physically and spiritually in this world. Uh, We can look at Genesis chapter one and verse 28, and we can see the work that God called Adam to. It says, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. In Genesis chapter two, we see an incredible commentary on the creation story. In verse 19, it says, and out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And so here we see God clearly giving Adam work, which brings to light a very important point for consideration. God did not give mankind a job as a result of messing up, right? And that's our temptation to view work as a curse. But even in his perfect provision, in his perfect economy, in his perfect kingdom, before sin, God gave Adam a job, right? God's will for our life has always included a J-O-B. God's will for your life has always included a J-O-B, right? We were quite literally made to work. And guys, this is so important. We're made to work, but to bring God glory in the process. And so turn to your neighbor and say, did you know that God made you to work? And turn to the other neighbor and say, did you know that God made you to work? (laughs) Guys, a key point consideration is that God's plan for our lives always involved work. God's plan for our lives always involved work. And the reality is that so many of us hate and resent work, despite the fact that it's actually God ordained for our lives. Do you know that? It's God ordained for our lives. But the problem is we're lazy. We resent our jobs and careers, reject the idea of going to work. Many of us would much rather spend long days fantasizing about winning the lottery and retiring at age 23. But for what? So you can waste your lives vegging out on the indulgences of this world. One of the things I've observed in our ministry is that so many of us are spiritually stunted. But it's interesting, it's not for lack of zeal for the Lord. I look around, I see young men and women that love the Lord, that, that love his word, that, that, that are zealous for ministry. Some would be bold enough to admit that they desire the office of a bishop. And that's a great thing. But when it comes to areas of practical 
and physical maturity, there's a disconnect. There's a fail to practically implement God's word into our lives. Your finances are a mess. You can't keep a job. You don't have any career aspirations, but you want a girlfriend, right? You want to get married. You desire the pastorate. There is spiritual stunting that's taking place. And my point in all this is to say that, man, many of us are zealous in ministry, but we don't see our workplace as equally God-ordained. Many of us misprioritize our jobs and even use ministry needs and obligations to justify negligence in the workplace. You're willing, right, to, to prioritize ministry and say, man, praise the Lord for that. But, but to use these obligations, these needs, to justify negligence in the workplace. What kind of testimony is that? Rather than viewing work, rather uh, we view work as a necessary evil when we should view it as God-ordained and something to do well and with excellence. And so there's no coincidence, you know, when we look at the ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that as he's calling his disciples, Jesus is pursuing and he's looking and he's finding men that are engaged in work when he invites them to follow him, right? We can look at Matthew 4 and we can see the testimony of Jesus finding Peter and Andrew as they're casting nets into the sea and he calls them to to follow him. We can see him call James and John the sons of Zebedee as they're mending their, their father's nets and he calls them to follow him. In Mark chapter 2, we see him find Levi at the receipt of customs, and he calls them to follow him. Jesus specifically called men who were given to work, fishermen, tax collectors. God is looking for hardworking men and women to call deeper into ministry, not lazy men that can't find a fit anywhere else in this life. And so consider, how are you stewarding the tasks that are in front of you? How are you stewarding the tasks that are in front of you? As we continue in Genesis, we already noted that God gave Adam a job before the fall, and thus God always intended for man to work. But we should also consider that Adam continued working after the fall. Only now, instead of working under the perfect conditions and provision from the Lord, Adam is called to work a cursed ground with his cursed flesh. A cursed ground with his cursed flesh. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, it says, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, And thou shalt eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return to the ground, for out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and to dust shalt thou return. Look at the vocabulary in this passage. In sorrow shalt thou eat, thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth, and the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat. Do these descriptions sound easy or enjoyable in terms of partaking in the work that God's called them to? 
Not at all. Not at all. Farming is tough work. Right, Eric? So for, for those of you who don't know, Eric grew up on a farm. And it's difficult work, right, Eric? And so if you guys have any questions about blue-collar work, just meet up with Eric after service. So he'll be help, happy to help you out, right? But this type of work, it requires grit. And it's so, so important for us to consider this because God never promised that we had to love our job, right? He never promised that our jobs would be easy. He never promised that it'd be uh, your, your passion, right? We have to dismiss this idea, this notion in this world that our jobs have to be personally fulfilling for us. This is simply a luxury of our times, and this is a luxury of our country, of the United States, right? And so many of us lack grit. You know, I was thinking of, uh, have you guys ever seen True Grit, that movie? It's so good, right? There's two of them, right? There's the original, you should watch it, and the Coen brothers did one too. Both are great. But man, we need grit. It's something that we lack. Uh, as a missions team at MBT, it's something that we're talking about. Is man, we're so comfortable as a people. And it's so important for us to, to, to get uncomfortable. But the point in this is so many of us are looking for the perfect job. We're looking for a job that fulfills us, that, that, that gives us purpose. And the reality is that that job doesn't exist. Most of us are asking, what is most profitable? What is most personally fulfilling for my life? Rather than asking, what is most profitable for the kingdom? Because the reality is, what's most profitable for the kingdom is often uncomfortable for us. So those of you who are at Midtown Baptist Temple, uh, in main service, we're going through the book of Genesis. And one of the things that we learn is that what was most profitable for Joseph was for him to be sold into slavery. Like what? That was what was most profitable for this world. And him being sold into slavery, it brought him to Egypt where he could save the world. But that's not comfortable. There's nothing comfortable about that. And, and so how do we make this practical? You know, I was thinking about my, my own life. And about eight years ago, uh, I met this lady named Lisa Cheadle. And she's awesome. Well, she was Lisa Brockmeyer at the time, right? And uh, man, she was so cool that I thought I shouldn't marry this lady. And so I did, but, but leading up to this, <laughs> leading up to this, uh, I studied art history. I was working in the arts, and I don't know what you guys know about the arts, uh, but there's no money there, right? And so I was at this crossroads in my life where I realized I wanted to marry this lady. I, I realized I had a responsibility to provide for a family, and what am I gonna do? And there's two options in front of me. One was a job opportunity to continue to pursue working in the arts, right? And man, this job, it was awesome. You know, I studied art history, and so it fit my, my education and the things I was interested in. I was passionate about it. I, I was, guys, I was even really good at it, right? So I'm like, oh, this is awesome. But the compensation, well, you know, we don't have to talk about that. It wasn't very good. Uh, and then there's another job in corporate America. And it was boring. It was just pushing paper, you know. It was something that I wasn't passionate about at all. But man, they had benefits. And the pay, it was, you know, it wasn't great, but it could support a family. And I was so torn. Do I pursue my passions or do I pursue something that, that God would use to provide for ministry in my family? And for most of us, this sounds like a very obvious answer, but I was so torn. If anything, 
I was leaning towards the arts, right? I was like, man, I got to pursue my heart, pursue my passion. And, and finally, Eric lovingly pulled me aside and he brought me to Genesis chapter 3, to, to this very, very same passage, right? And he pointed out the passage that, that God never promised us that we had to love our job. In sorrow shalt thou eat, thorns also and thistles shalt bring forth, and the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat. God never promised that we had to love our jobs, but he promised to provide. And Eric laid out very, very practically for me the biblical responsibilities of a husband, and that included provision. He challenged me to enter into marriage with a sacrificial lifestyle, even if that meant sacrificing my dreams and my ambitions the things that I desired for what's best for my family and for ministry. These were practical words that I needed to hear. They were clear and they were biblical. Many of us are pursuing careers that we're passionate about, right? Careers that we're good at, careers that fulfill us. And man, amen to all of that if you can get it. But also keep in mind that God never promised us any of that. Are you willing to submit your career to God? Are you willing to set aside your ambitions and your dreams for his? Are you willing to embrace and even endure hard work or careers that you're not passionate about because God provided it and it's what's profitable for ministry in this season? In Acts 18, we see Paul work as a tent maker. In verses three and four, it says, and because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought for by their occupation, they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. It's interesting, you know, from everything I read about Paul, I've read Acts, I've read all of his epistles. Uh, there's nothing in it that would lead me to believe that Paul was passionate about the work of tent making. Right? He wasn't like, oh, man, the hides and tanning the leather and these types of stitch. Like, as I read the book of Acts, as I read his epistles, Man, there's nothing that he's passionate about except for the work of the gospel. Not even his own life. Like he's willing to lay down his life for the sake of the gospel. And yet he wrought daily, every, uh, he wrought daily so that every Sabbath day he could persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Are you willing to work hard? Are you willing to endure that the work of the gospel might be furthered? You don't have to love your job. It's a lie. And so within the first three chapters of Genesis, God establishes some foundational principles about work. It's very, very simple, but it's a very important framework for us to consider and for us to agree with God about in our hearts. Christian, God always intended for you to work. And Christian, he didn't promise that it'd be easy, exciting, or convenient. But anything worth doing is worth doing well. And so our next topic for consideration is a biblical approach to work. Again, if anything worth doing is worth doing well, then how should we approach this work that God's given us? And so in this section, we're gonna outline the manner in which we should work so that God can get maximum glory out of our lives, so that we can work in a blameless way, so we can have favor, and God can give us these effectual open doors through our workplace. And so the overarching theme for this section is going to be Colossians 3, 22 through 24, where we're instructed to work heartily as unto the Lord. And this mentality, it completely changes the way in which we work, 
right? When we work hardly as unto the Lord, it means that we work as if God, the God of creation, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, you know, the, the, the God of the Bible, as if he is your boss. And that mentality, it should produce things in our life. If we're, if we're working as if God is our boss, is our overseer, then it should produce a diligent hand. It should produce a faithful testimony, and it should produce respect for authorities and the leadership that God has put over our life. And so we're going to look at these three ideas, a diligent hand, a faithful testimony, and respect for leadership. If we can get these things down, you will be more productive and more efficient than probably anybody else in your workplace. And it'll be a beautiful testimony to the Lord that will give you these effectual open doors. And so first, let's consider our key point number one, that God desires for Christians to be diligent employees. And the Bible has a lot to say about diligence. Again, this is such a, just a flyover view of this word, of this study. Uh, there's so much more that I wish we could get into. Uh, but as you study out this word diligence in your Bible, it appears most frequently in two books of your Bible, right? Uh, like Deuteronomy and Proverbs, it's like a landslide. Nothing else even comes close. I think the next closest mention uh, is like four mentions in a book of the Bible, right? And so you go to Deuteronomy and to Proverbs if you want to learn about this, this idea of diligence. And what's really interesting is that in Deuteronomy, almost all of the references about diligence is to diligently take heed to the commandments. It deals with our stewardship of the word of God, of the law, right? That we take heed to his commandments. And in Proverbs, almost all the references deal with us being diligent in work, Diligent in work. And so the application here is that diligence comes, right? Diligence in our work comes from diligence to God's word. Because as we allow God's word to fill us up, it can't help but work its way out of us, right? And so diligence in our work, it comes from diligence to God's word. And as we study these principles of diligence, every aspect of it that we can apply to our work lives, we can apply to our study of God's word. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And so a diligent worker strives for mastery. A diligent worker, a diligent steward strives for mastery, right? A diligent worker is someone who strives for mastery in his profession. It's not enough just to clock in and to clock out, but to execute their job with skill and intentionality with skill and intentionality. In Proverbs 22, verse 29, it says, Seest thou a man diligent in his business, he shall stand before kings, he shall not stand before mean men. And that same word translated as diligent here, it means skilled, right? So someone who's skilled, someone who's prepared in their profession, they're going to stand before kings. And that same Hebrew word that's translated as diligent in Proverbs 22 we find in Ezra chapter 7, and it's translated as ready, right? In Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, it says, This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a diligent scribe. He was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And what's he doing? He's standing before kings, isn't he? And the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. 
And so here we find that Ezra is a living embodiment of the Proverbs 22 principle. Here he stands before a king and is granted his request. And we see the same in the lives of Joseph, Nehemiah, and Daniel. All live out the same testimony of embodying the work of a diligent steward. And one of the byproducts of a diligent worker is the ability to gain favor, which we see exemplified here. And so we should all strive for mastery in our profession. The testimony of a skilled worker provides opportunity for growth in your career, but also provides opportunity for you to use your position for God's glory. That's why this is such a big deal, right? Not so you're good at something, right? So that you can be blameless and it gives you more latitude to be used for God in your workplace. Pastor Brandon Briscoe is a high school teacher at Lee Summit West. Raise your hand if you attended Lee Summit West and were there whenever Brandon was teaching. You see the hands. And so, man, praise the Lord. While he was there, he had incredible opportunities to use his position as an avenue for ministry. He also did it with excellence, right? And anyone that spent any time with Brandon knows that Brandon loves teaching and that he misses it dearly. He invested a ton of time, of money, pouring into advanced education and degrees. He's read extensively on pedagogy, on behavioral and cognitive development, and he's helped to develop one of the strongest high, uh, high school fine arts uh, departments in the metro whenever he was teaching at Lee Summit West. But the beautiful testimony about Pastor Briscoe is that while he oversaw the portfolio program at Lee Summit West, for four years he oversaw that program, and he was responsible for about $750,000 of dollars worth of portfolio-based scholarships awarded. Three quarters of a million dollars worth of scholarship awarded based on portfolios in a four-year span. He did his work with diligence, with excellence, right? It was a craft that he was passionate about, and it afforded him the freedom to minister freely and effectively in the public schools. It gave him latitude to reach people like me, right? You want to be a diligent worker because it reflects the positive traits of God and it allows for favor and ministry opportunities to be freely and effectively used by God in your workplaces. Can you say that you do your job with excellence? Are you attempting to perfect your craft? You consider that, how can I be better at my craft, right? At the thing that God's given me to, how can I perfect this? How can I do it better? A diligent worker considers these things. They're about perfecting the craft that God's given them. A diligent worker is detail-oriented. A diligent worker is detail-oriented. In Proverbs 27, verse 23, it says, Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flock, and look well to thy herds. And obviously there's practical wisdom in being detail-oriented, thorough, hands-on in your occupation. And this proverb, it speaks to an, an agricultural setting, but a head of flock, it's money, y'all, right? And we are to be diligent to know the state of our business. Joseph, who will continue to be an incredible example for us as we study what it means to be a good, diligent, faithful, respectful steward, is a perfect example of someone who's detail-oriented. 
We see this over and over throughout the, the whole span of his life, right? But in Genesis chapter 40, whenever he's thrown into prison, he's diligent to know the state of the inmates that he's responsible for. So much so that when they have a fallen countenance because of bad dreams, he takes note of it, right? In the very next chapter, we see that Joseph is elevated to ruler over all of Egypt. And you'd think, finally, you know, he's sold into to slavery, he's sold into prison. Now he can kick back, relax, put up his feet. But the testimony in Genesis 41, verse 46, as soon as he's given this office as leader over all of Egypt, it says that he went throughout all the land of Egypt, right? Rather than kicking back, Joseph immediately got to work and you could find him in the fields, diligently overseeing the gathering of grain during seasons of plenty. He's assessing the situations with his own eyes, his feet in the field. In Nehemiah chapter seven, we find Nehemiah replacing himself in ministry. And as he's replacing himself in ministry, he's giving clear and deliberate instructions to the men that are replacing him, right? And one of the things that he makes them do is stand by as they're closing the gates and barring the doors, right? It's not enough just to assume that that's done. I need you to stand by to watch and to oversee it. Be detail-oriented because we, man, it's such a big deal to understand and to protect the city by, 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 by figuring out what comes in and what goes out of it, right? We can't just assume that things are going to get done. It requires a diligent hand. One of the best examples of this I can think of in Scripture is in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Right, we find a zealous king in David who, who's full of good intentions uh, whenever he goes to move the Ark of the Covenant. In verses 6 to 11, we see him just with excitement, hire men, hire musicians. And, and, and what happened? We see that Uzzah touched the Ark of the Covenant and he fell out dead. And what was the problem? David didn't consider the details. Instead of moving the Ark in the prescribed manner, outlined in Exodus 25, Numbers 4, Numbers 7, he employed a new technique, choosing to use a new cart rather than wooden staves, a technique taken from the Philistines, from the enemies of God, rather than the word of God. He hired Uzzah. Uzzah's name means strength. So he hired a man that could do this on his own strength rather than employing the Levites, the Kohathites, the men who were set apart for the work of moving the ark. In his haste, he appointed a man who was not biblically anointed, appointed, or authorized, and it cost him his life. Do you get the picture? The details matter. Do you find that you're frequently overlooking details in your workplace? Are you prone to making the same mistakes over and over again? Excellence is in the details. I would encourage everyone to slow down to consider the small ways in which you can refine your work approach. What are the small things that you can do that will make a big difference? Next we see that a diligent worker works with the future in mind. A diligent worker works with the future in mind. In Proverbs 21, verse 5, it says that the thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness but of everyone that is hasty only to want. And this is a really interesting passage uh, because as you read it, the emphasis here is not on the actions of the diligent, 
but on the thoughts of the diligent. Right? The thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness. And in the book of Proverbs, we see these contrasting ideas. First, we see the, the lazy, the sluggard, the slothful. These are people who oppose the work of diligence and, and, and their work, right? And their actions. And we see them contrasted against the wise, against the diligent, against the prudent. And so a, a lazy person is defective in their actions, right? We see this in Proverbs 10, verse 4, Proverbs 12, verse 24, uh, and many other references. But a lazy person is defective in their actions, in the work that they're doing. But, but notice here that the hasty, the, the person that, that, that's rash, that's not thoughtful, right? They're rash, they're hasty in their thoughts and their communication. They stand in opposition to the thoughts of the diligent. The lazy are defective in their actions, but the hasty are defective in their thoughts. A diligent steward is not lazy, but he's also not hasty. A diligent steward is level and fair, is consistent in their stewardship and in their thought life. A diligent steward tends to be organized and tends to be a goal maker. These are people who have a clear vision and work a plan to accomplish it. If you don't have a goal, if you don't have a clear vision, then you're just gonna flounder. You're not working towards anything. You're not working towards anything. No wonder you're not effective. No wonder you're not fruitful in the workplace. These are people who have a clear vision and work a plan to accomplish them. And the result of this is plenteousness in the future. So the question is, are you goal-oriented in your careers? Are there clear goals that you're striving for? And do you have a path? Do you have a plan in play to get there? If not, you might not be diligent. You might not be diligent. Joseph, again, is an excellent example of this. In Genesis chapter 40, he stands by Pharaoh. He not only offers an interpretation for Pharaoh's dream, but he puts in place a plan towards provision looking 14 years into the future. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. 14 years into the future. In Proverbs 27, verse 23 through 24, it says to be diligent to know the state of thy flock and look well on thy herds, but why? For riches are not forever, and doth the crown endure to every generation. The diligent are not just hard workers, they are thoughtful workers. And this type of planning and organization leads towards provision and success for years to come. Provision and success for years to come. And so we're called to be diligent stewards, but we're also called, God desires for Christians to be a faithful employee, to be faithful. Blade took us to, to Luke 16 yesterday, and it's such a key passage. Anybody that's studying this idea of stewardship, right? in the Bible, we learn that the key to the word of God are the words of God, right? And, and as we study out the words of God, we find different principles. We find principles of first mention. Uh, we find principles of progressive mention, of last mention, but one of the, the really key principles is a, a principle of full mention. So anybody that's been in Kaya, we've been in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we find a passage of full mention for the word charity. 
and it really hashes out with uh, greater breath what this idea of charity means. And here in Luke 16, this is a passage of full mention for stewardship, and it actually gives us these great keys for faithfulness as well. In verse 10 of Luke 16, it says, He that is faithful with that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And so the first thing that I want us to see here is that a steward's greatest challenge is faithfulness. A steward's greatest challenge is faithfulness. So if you want to be a good steward, you need to understand the ideas surrounding faithfulness, right? In Proverbs 20, verse 6, it says, Most men proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. And so if we're going to become good stewards, it's critical for us to understand and to live out biblical principles of faithfulness. In this Luke 16, we learn that the physical things of this world are pictures for spiritual realities and that God uses physical things of this world to understand how we will manage spiritual things. We learn that individuals who are faithful with little are faithful with much and that if we can't uh, steward the physical jobs and resources of this world, who will commit to us spiritual resources? And so while many of us have failed to see the connection between our jobs and careers and our spiritual walks, God actually views them as intimately connected. God views the way that we steward our jobs and careers and our spiritual walks as intimately connected. And as a litmus test for your spiritual stewardship and the sincerity of your faith. That sounds extreme, but it's true. So let's consider a few elements of faithfulness that we can learn from this passage. First, we learn that a faithful steward works productively without direct oversight. A faithful steward works productively without direct oversight. This is something that we see in the parable of the talents, in the parable of the vineyards, in the parable of the unjust steward, right? In each one of these parables, this principle resounds. In each one of them, the steward is given something to govern without direct supervision, and they're expected to work diligently to multiply an investment in due time. The master could come back at any moment, and he expects productivity, and he expects gain. And for the natural man, this is an area of great weakness, right? Just, just think about your high school English class. Right? The minute the teacher steps out into the hall, all hell breaks loose, right? Next thing you know, Judy and Rebecca are yapping. Tommy starts throwing stuff. Gina pulls out her phone. Antoine's dancing on the desk. Like, what is going on? The teacher just stepped out into the hallway, and all hell breaks loose, right? Why? Because the master is gone. Because no one is watching. And this same struggle from eighth grade remains true in our lives to this day. When no one is watching, will you remain faithful to the work? I think it's important for me to say, just as we could relate diligence in our work to diligence to God's word, we can do the same with faithfulness, right? Diligence and to our, our, our word and to, to our work, but also faithfulness 
to our work and faithfulness to the work that God's called us to. When no one is watching, will you remain faithful to the work? Will you remain faithful to the work? Or will you allow these times to justify distraction, laziness, and all-out wickedness? When no one is watching, will you remain faithful to the work? Or will you allow this time to justify distraction, laziness, and all-out wickedness? In Matthew 24, verses 45 through 51, we learn of a faithful and wise servant. And the question on the floor is, who will be the faithful and wise servant? In 46, we learn that the, the faithful servant is called blessed because he works diligently when the master is gone and he's found working whenever he returns. And in verse 48, we find an unfaithful steward who uses his master's time away to be lazy, to indulge in wickedness, and his master comes back and finds him in such a state. This man is called evil, and he is dismissed from his stewardship. All of us here are young adults, and Blade alluded to it yesterday, but we're, it's time to put away childish ways, right? Many of us work hybrid schedules. Many of us work from home. Many of us are living outside of our parents' home for the first time. We're responsible for schoolwork and managing our own schedules. And will we allow these freedoms and conveniences to kill productivity? to justify laziness, to justify wickedness and distraction. Even an ant understands this simple principle. In Proverbs 6, we learn of an ant, and we're told to go to the ant, thou sluggard, to consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, no overseer or ruler, without direct supervision, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. Without direct supervision, the ant works hard, consistently, and is blessed for it. What are you doing when no one is looking? Are you someone that can be trusted without direct supervision? Are you someone that constantly needs to be told what to do in the workplace? Are you someone that needs to be micromanaged in the workplace? A faithful steward works productively without direct supervision. Next, we see a faithful steward multiplies his master's investment. And this really should go without saying, but you should be profitable for your company. In any job, your employer is entrusting you with a certain amount of resources and responsibilities, and you're to leverage your time and your work to multiply the investment of your master. In Luke 16, it says, He said also unto his disciples, There is a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. This steward was entrusted with resources to multiply for his master. And the testimony is that he was wasting goods and he's called to give an account for his stewardship. All of us should have moments where we take account of our stewardship and consider the value that we bring to our companies. I was speaking with Pastor Will Mata. Pastor Will Mata oversees the Clase Hispana here at MBT. Uh, and like many of our pastors, uh, he works a full-time job to support his ministry. And I work in sales, and Pastor Will works in sales, so I, I like to talk about sales and the state of business. And so I was asking him just about his job and how things are going. 
and, and not bragging in the most humble way. If anything, I was drawing information out of him. Uh, but he told me that he's been working in sales for 10 years. And the testimony of Pastor Will in the workplace is that he's been the number one salesperson in his company for the past nine out of 10 years that he's been there. Pastor Will is a faithful employee, right? He's profitable for his company. And it's a beautiful testimony to the Lord. In Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, we find a parable of the talents. And this parable, a master gives stewards five talents, two talents, and one talent, right? And, and I want to make something really clear. We see the master give the talents based on the capacity of the steward. And that's actually a very comforting thing, right? So you might be looking at someone like Brandon and Blade, a five-talent person, someone that has high capacity, and say, man, I'm just going to screw this up. Well, man, maybe God's given you one talent. Can you focus on that one talent and, and actually manage it faithfully, right? What has God given you? He hasn't given all of us five talents. Some of us, he's given two talents. Some of us, he's given one talent. It's not based on how many talents we have, but what we do with the talents he's given us, right? And so we find in verse 20 that he gives, you know, this five talents and the five talent person comes back with five more talents. And the testimony is well done, thou good and what? Faithful servant. Thou hast been what? Faithful over a few things. In verse 22, we see the two talent person come back and he brings back two more talents. And the testimony of the Lord is well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been Faithful over a few things. But as we get further down, we find that one talent person. And that one talent person, rather than multiplying the investment of his boss, of his master, he buried that talent. And he brought back that same talent with no profit. And the testimony of the Lord is that wicked and slothful servant. You lazy bum. You lazy bum. The faithful steward is not a liability for his employer, but is it profitable for his employer. Are you profitable for your company? Do you contribute value in your workplace? And guys, I'll confess, man, this has been a really good study for me. I start a new job on Tuesday, right? And so as God is dealing with me here, it's like, oh man, like this is his expectation for me in the workplace. This is heavy, but man, this is worth doing well, right? A faithful steward can be trusted with more. And, and we see this resound in the uh, the. <clears throat> Matthew 25, 14 through 30, uh, this parable of the, the, the talents, right? Because the person that stewards five talents well gets entrusted with, with more, right? The person that stewards two talents well gets entrusted with more. In Luke 16, verse 10, it says, he that is faithful with that which is least is also faithful in much, and he that is unjust in that which is least is unjust also in much. And so a steward that works without oversight is profitable uh, for his company is generally someone who is faithful with little and someone who can be trusted with more. And this is just kind of a, a natural law, right? The person that, that shows up late every day to work, the person that, that steals from the cash register, the person that doesn't pick up after themselves at work, like, are you going to promote that guy or the one that shows up five minutes early, that, that, that's kind and honest and a hard worker? Right? Obviously, you're going to promote the person that's faithful with little, right? They, they've proven themselves as a cash register, and so they can be entrusted with, with more. 
Eric Phillips is one of my best friends, uh, and he's a fantastic businessman and a faithful employee. Uh, and Eric, he started out his career as a cash register at Walmart, right? A cash, cashier, cash register. You're not a cash register. <laughs> Eric would just take the money and he would just store it for himself. <laughs> no. But Eric, he started his career as a cashier at Walmart, right? And, and Eric was a faithful cashier and he became the customer service manager at Walmart. And from here, Eric would take incremental steps every job being a little bit higher up the totem pole than the last. And Eric says that his goal in every position was to master it completely and then seek to be promoted to the next level. To master it completely and seek to be promoted to the next level. He started as a cashier and today Eric is a national sales director and is responsible for about $35 million worth of business. And that didn't happen overnight. Eric has a proven track record of faithfulness. He's a faithful steward, and he could be entrusted with more. In Psalm 78, verses 70 through 72, we see the testimony of David. We see that he was faithful with his father's flock, right? And so he could be entrusted with the father's flock, with Israel. David was faithful in the fields of his father, and so the father gave him Israel to shepherd and you can contrast that with the testimony of Saul. You can look at 1 Samuel chapter 9, and you can see how Saul took care of his flock, right? Uh, and it plays out that way with the nation of Israel as well. Uh, but please notice an underlying truth that comes with this point. It's that there's no task too small for a faithful steward. You know that? There's no task too small for a faithful steward. I had the privilege of discipling uh, Michael Black, uh, and anybody that knows Michael knows that he, I mean, he's just the real deal. He's awesome, right? And one of the things I acknowledged really early on is that there is no task too small for Michael. He was meek, he was humble, but he was faithful. He came prepared with his discipleship lessons and memory verses. At Bible study, he was ready to minister. At church to this day, you can regularly find Michael taking out trash, picking up chairs, or cleaning up after others. Michael has been faithful, and there has never been a project that was beneath him. And so when I learned that he'd be leading this year's spring trip to Tampa, Florida, I couldn't be more thrilled, right? It only made sense to me. I knew that he took the small matters seriously. And so when it came to organizing a trip, leading people, loving on Living Faith Tampa, I knew that he was the perfect man for the job, right? It's a beautiful testimony. If you're faithful with that which is least, you can be entrusted with more. Are you someone that can be entrusted with more? Are you someone that's frequently overlooked for promotions in the workplace? A faithful steward performs despite unfavorable circumstances. Uh, I'm going to start flying now just due to, uh, due to time. Um, but this is a principle that we see really throughout um, all of the scripture, right? Um, but I want to, to make clear that there uh, is going to be seasons in life where work is less than favorable, right? Like, if it hasn't happened to you, like, it's going to, right? Where, where work is just hard. I'm not saying that anybody should sign up for abuse. No one should sign up to be perpetrated against. But there's seasons in life 
where work is just hard and it's all you can do to just get through. Think of uh, Connor Mulo, right? Connor, she's currently 27 weeks pregnant. She currently works about 72 to 75 hours a week as a medical doctor resident. She's currently struggling with nausea, uh, sporadic nosebleeds, and yet she's just got the most beautiful testimony, right? Connor holds a beautiful testimony among us. She's sober, she's faithful to her work, she's faithful to her husband, and she's faithful to the Lord. Connor has grit, and sometimes work will test you physically, mentally, emotionally, and even spiritually. And again, if it hasn't happened yet, it's coming. There's gonna be seasons where you're forced to work crazy hours. There's gonna be seasons where you're tempted to believe that you work for the Antichrist incarnate, <laughs> where work is taxing and unrewarding, where you wake up and just dread the idea. You guys have been there. You just dread the idea of getting out of bed and going to work, right? There's gonna be seasons where you're dealing with stresses and drama that happen outside of your work. And despite all this, Rather than that giving you license to justify negligence, God actually expects for you to double down in faithfulness. This is where faithfulness is proven out, right? I wish we could have time to actually look at examples of this. We could look at, at Jacob and his service to Laban. We could look at, at Joseph, perpetrated again, sold into slavery, you know, thrown into prison, wrongfully convicted, and despite all this, he works faithfully. You can look at people like, like Daniel and Nehemiah who are brought into captivity and they serve faithfully. The list goes on and on. But despite your hardships that you're facing in your career, in your workplace, we get to allow God to sort out those details. We're called to remain faithful to our roles and we can trust God for rest in the process. And so we're going to jump quickly to our uh, last uh, no, our, our last section under um, uh, biblical approach to work. And again, we're going to fly through this for time's sake. Uh, God desires for Christians to respect leadership. Uh, and I'm going to be cutting material as we go. And so, you know, reflect on your discipleship lesson, right? We can look at uh, <clears throat> uh, Titus 2, uh, verses 9 through 10, and we could pull some of these principles from here. Uh, but the three things for your blanks, uh, that you should respect in terms of your leadership is their authority, their property, and their time. And so as I've worked for many years in my life now, uh, these are areas, again, that, that set employees apart. Uh, so in terms of authority, one of the, the most common ways I see people undermine authority in the workplace uh, is by gossip, right? You undermine your authority in the workplace by talking negatively about managers and leadership behind their back. From these types of conversations, do not engage, walk away. Walk away, right? And it's so, so common. You should speak words that are edifying, and if there's critique, you should take it up the ladder. Simple, but profound. How many of us are guilty of this, right? Don't talk about authority. Don't undermine a leadership by talking negatively and gossiping about them behind their backs. Property. Don't steal from your employer, right? Simple, handle things with care. If you take something, if you use something, return it in the same condition that you used it or in a better condition than the, uh, when you used it. In terms of time, you should show up to work on time. Actually, you should show up to work early. 
right? You should show up to work early. When you're at work, you should work. How many of us are guilty of frequently surfing the web and internet shopping while on the clock? That shouldn't be true of you. That should not be true of you. That's a shame. You're stealing your employer's time. Think if you spent that time towards being productive in the work that God's called you to, that your employer's called you to, right? Again, you should respect the leadership and authority at your workplace. Here's a couple of practical ways where we commonly infringe and break the respect that, that our employers deserve, right? And so our last section that we're going to consider is a biblical mission of work. A biblical mission of work. Really simple. These are things that you're familiar with. These are things that are worth being reminded of, right? God gave you a job to provide for your family and your ministry. And so we talked about the biblical origins of work, and this kind of gives us a framework about, man, that God expects us to work, a biblical approach to work, how we should work, but the biblical mission of work, what is the purpose behind the work that we're engaging in? And one of those purposes is that God wants you to work hard. He wants you to have a good job so that you can provide for your ministry and so you can provide for your family. We see these principles resound throughout Scripture. In Acts 18, 3-4, we see the testimony of Paul working as a tent maker. Why? So he can reason with the Greeks and persuade the Jews on the Sabbath day. In 2 Thessalonians verse 3 through, uh, or chapter 3, verse 10, we see that if you don't work, you should actually you shouldn't eat, right? In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, we see that someone that doesn't provide for their own household, that they're viewed as worse than an infidel. And so God gives us jobs to provide for our, man, uh, for our family and also for our ministry. This is a very clear teaching. It's a very practical one. But you need resources to steward for God's glory. And you can't expect those resources just to drop on your lap. Get to work. Earn a living. Earn an income so you can manage those resources for God's glory. And lastly, God gave you a job in order to have a mission field for a ministry. He wants you to have a field for ministry, right? For me, my workplace has been one of the most effective fishing holes that I have. I've been able to start a number of Bible studies with coworkers. I've had the privilege of inviting a number of clients to church and ministry endeavors. I'm currently discipling, uh, who's now a dear friend, but someone that I met as a client in my workplace. At work, I find that I have the most consistent exposure to the lost world, right? With my free time, I hang out with y'all. <laughs> I hang out with other believers, and at work, I'm constantly surrounded by the lost world. And one of the truths that we find in God's word is that this lost world, they don't naturally seek the things of God. And so we should be full of faith that God desires to use us to reach our coworkers and clients. And so let's look at a biblical example. This will be the last passage that we consider before closing in 2 Kings chapter 5. Feel free to turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's the story of Naaman and Elisha. It says, Now Naaman, captain of the hosts of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria, and he was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, 
Would God, my Lord, or with the prophet that is in Samaria? For he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And so let's break this down. Naaman, he is a, a military commander for the king of Syria. He's clearly a diligent worker, right? His skills have put him in a position before kings. When we look at the description of Naaman, it says that he was a captain. It says that he was a great man. It says that he was honorable. It says that he was a mighty man of valor, right? Naaman's, I mean, for, for all purposes, he's a righteous guy, but he's got a problem, right? And man, how many of us know people like this, right? We, we, we know the leaders in our workplace. We know the executives that we work around. We know our bosses, our boss's boss. These are people that we revere, right? These are the people that we respect. These are the people that maybe we feel the most reserved around and maybe the most nervous to be bold with our faith around, right? This man, he's got seemingly everything figured out. He's the leader of the captain of the the king of Syria, he, he's a mighty man of valor. He's honorable. Like, he's got it all figured out. But in verse 1, we see one of the famous butts of the Bible, right? You guys know there are famous butts in the Bible? That one fell flat. I thought it was going to be... No? It's like, should I keep... No, I shouldn't. Yeah. yeah, so we see one of the famous butts of the Bible, right? Despite his success, what's Naaman's problem? But he was a leper. But he was a leper. This disease of the flesh was going to kill him. It's a picture of sin and death. He's hopeless. Though he's successful in this world, this leprosy will be the end of him. Just as sin will lead to the death of your coworkers and clients and anyone who's not found in Christ. But look at the testimony of this little maid. Like we, we don't even know her name, right? She's easily overlooked in the story. But this lady is a catalyst for Naaman's salvation. I want you to see that she was a captive from Israel. And so her working conditions, they were less than ideal. Yet clearly, she works faithfully and diligently. So much so that her words in a dire matter are taken seriously. She was put into a place to speak hope when there was no hope. And rather than her being dejected and downcast by her situation, rather than denying her God because of her captivity, she worked hard to, to, and was full of faith and looking for opportunities to make God, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, known. This little maid pointed Naaman to the man of God in Israel. And y'all, when he got there, he was cleansed and he was healed of his leprosy. And what a beautiful picture of salvation. Is it possible no matter how lowly of a position that you hold in your workplace, that God desires to use you there to be a minister to the lost. That you might provide hope when there is none. That you could point to the man of God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. God's purpose in your work hasn't changed. Just like we saw in Genesis chapter 1 with Adam, he wants you to be fruitful and to multiply. Disciples of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is your testimony in your workplace? And when opportunities come, will you be ready and will you be bold enough to
to point to Christ as the answer for every problem. And so in closing, uh, this is your part of the service, right? Uh, Preaching God's word is like any good worship song. There's a call and response nature. And so is there any area of this message? Is there any area of stewarding your careers that's pricked your heart? For some of us, we realize that it's time to grow up, right? That while we've taken ministry in our local church seriously, that there are practical areas of stewardship in our lives that are still immature. And we need to repent of that. We need to come forward. We need to get accountable to moving forward with career aspirations, with practical areas of our life. Some of us have been coasting in the workplace. We realize that our approach has not been diligent, it's not been faithful, and it's not been respectful. God is calling you to work hardly unto the Lord, and you're just coasting. You're a mediocre employee, and you need to repent of that. And hopefully all of us are challenged by the testimony of the little maid. Do you know that God wants to use you in your workplace to magnify the Lord? If you're burdened for souls in your workplace, I invite you to come forth with their names ready on your tongue to make intercession. And so I don't know if we're closing in praise or not, uh, but we're going to provide opportunity to make decisions and then direction for where to head next. And so thanks for, for letting me, man, just share what God's put on my heart with you. I pray that it's been practical. Uh, and Lord, I'm just going to take time to, to pray for this group of people. Uh, Lord, uh, we get to serve you. And the way that we serve our employees, the way that we serve in our workplaces, it's a direct reflection of the way that we view and we steward our relationship with you, Lord. And so Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be effective employees and that with that, you give us latitude and liberty to make you known through our workplaces. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.li.com.